Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike Lecouture. Today, sticker shock. When can shoppers see some relief at stores? This is homegrown liberal inflation. They're trying to do everything they can to block it and even kill our support for these families. Inflation is easing slightly, but grocery store prices continue to store, soar, leaving Ottawa divided on a solution for Canadians. Can the government ease pocketbook pressure? MPs debate that in moments. And Ukraine's leader speaks with CTV. This is more than partnership. It's something more, something bigger. It's like being relatives regardless of the distance. Vladimir Zelensky on Canada's support in his fight against Putin's forces. We'll talk to CTV's Paul Workman about his conversation with the president. Plus, convoy blame game. The province and the federal government stood together. Doug Ford invoked his Emergencies Act. We invoked our Emergencies Act. There's a lot of blame to go around. A lot of blame to go around. The Prime Minister defends Ford's convoy response as the national inquiry into the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Here's Ottawa police infighting affected the city's response. A provincial opposition MPP tells us why his party wants Ford to testify in Ottawa. And a community is in shock. After the stabbing death of an RCMP constable, Shaylin Yang. Now the suspect in her killing has been charged with first-degree murder. We get the latest from BC. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. The world economy is slowing down, and the Canadian economy is slowing down. Uh, that is the natural, indeed, the intended consequence of the interest rate increases by the Bank of Canada. And it was important for me today to be candid about that with Canadians. Inflation in Canada is on the decline, slightly. New numbers from Statistics Canada show the annual consumer price index rose at a slower pace. It was still 6.9% in September, but that was the third consecutive month it actually went down. The deceleration can largely be attributed to dropping gas prices. Despite that, rising food prices continue to drive up inflation. Year-over-year, year, grocery prices are up by 11.4%. It's the fastest pace of increase since 1981. It all comes as the Bank of Canada is expected to make another interest rate hike next week. Now, the central bank has been hiking their key rate since March, and it's currently at 3.25%. Last night, the government's bill to temporarily double the GST rebate for six months received royal assent. So with inflation easing somewhat and GST relief on the way, should the government stay the course on its affordability plan? Or do they need to pivot to address the runaway train that is flu food inflation. Let's get to our panel of MPs to weigh in. Liberal National Revenue Parliamentary Secretary Peter Franciscatos. We've got Conservative National Revenue Critic Adam Chambers and NDP MP Taylor Bacharach all with me right now. Mr. Franciscatos, let's start with you. Overall inflation is easing, but food inflation is increasing at the fastest pace in 41 years. Does your government believe that a temporary boost to the GST rebate is actually enough to help Canadians pay for that consistently high grocery prices? Well, Mike, thank you for having me. 
Certainly it is encouraging to see inflation overall decline for the third month in a row. However, we recognize that it remains a very difficult time for Canadians, whether it is paying for food at the grocery store, for rent, gas. It is a very difficult time, and I think we do need to, in fact, stay the course. Uh, the GST uh, tax credit, the doubling that will help 11 million Canadians, uh, is a very significant uh, policy measure. This is something that the government has articulated. This is something that the government won support for in Parliament. We did see the Conservatives come over eventually. They needed some encouraging. We now encourage them to do something else, which is to finally stop obstructing rent support for Canadians and dental support for Canadians. They've been doing that. It's unacceptable. We're talking about, especially in the case of kids, dental support that would go to families in need. These are things that the government can do to help. There's a climate action incentive. So, okay, but hold on, Mr. Franciscatos. How does so, that help? How does that help with the prices in the grocery store, though? In the case of the climate action incentive, uh, I speak as an Ontario MP. Just on Friday, there was $186.25 deposited into the accounts of Canadians, at least for an average family of four. That is significant. That is now a quarterly payment. That's something that people can continue to to depend on. If it was up to the Conservatives, gone is carbon pricing, gone is therefore a serious focus on climate change, and gone is that rebate that goes back into the pockets of Canadians. In fact, 8 out of 10 Canadian families see more in terms of the rebate than what they put in. Uh, these are things that are uh, really tangible, and the Conservatives are offering what? To focus on cryptocurrency as a, some sort of offset to inflation. That's not serious economic policy. And trickle-down economics. In uh, fact, yeah. if you see Mr. what's Francis happening Scott, across I'll, the I'm Atlantic, going to stop you for a second. I, I haven't heard them raise sure. that as, as an option recently in the House. I know that that was something that Mr. Polyev talked about. They haven't said that that was a solution to this right now. Let's go to Mr. Chambers. Today's numbers show that inflation is slowing. We've heard it a few times, but your party wants to cut the carbon tax to help Canadians right now. But there's two things. The first, StatsCan shows that their numbers are showing that Gas prices are actually on the decline, and some Canadians just got their carbon tax rebate. So isn't this latest round of carbon tax rebates a good thing for Canadians and their pocketbooks? Well, let's start with the claim that inflation is slowing. Experts actually expected inflation at 6.7%, not 6.9%. So they're actually expecting the Bank of Canada to raise rates more than they were today than yesterday before we got this report. We shouldn't be celebrating a 6 percent uh, 9% inflation rate. That's well outside of our range of 3%. One of the things driving, as you mentioned, food costs, but also energy prices. We just had a report this week that energy costs uh, across the country are going to force energy bills in some parts of the country up 100%, 150%. So yes, conservatives have said one of the ways we can tame inflation is a help with energy costs. So cutting the GST on the carbon tax, cutting the carbon tax increases at our plants, that's how we believe we're going to tame inflation. Mr. Backcrack, I wanted to bring you in here for a second. Your party successfully passed that motion on greenflation. It's a non-binding motion, though. And I wanted to know, the fact that you have the supply and conference agreement and agreement with the Liberals, is there any way that you can use that and parlay it into pushing this government to sort of fast-track the greenflation motion? Well, absolutely. Like, we're going to do everything that's required to have families' backs across Canada. The, the grocery prices, the, the, the price of gas, all of these factors are, are hurting families right across the country. 
Uh, we're hearing that every single day. That's why since back in May, we've been pushing for uh, these different forms of relief, pushing mm -hmm. for the doubling of the GST tax credit, pushing for the Canada housing benefit to be uplifted, um, pushing for uh, real changes that are going to help people in the short term. So when it comes to the motion, we're, we're talking specifically about grocery prices right. because the, the corporate profits that we've seen in the grocery sector are out of control and families are having a hard time buying food in Canada. Right. Like this is, this is unthinkable. And so we need to get to the bottom of what's happening. We're right. very pleased that uh, the House finally uh, came around to supporting our motion, and we're going to keep pushing. Uh, my colleague Alistair McGregor is doing great work at the Agriculture Committee. There's going to be an investigation into what exactly is going on. We're going to get to the bottom of why families are having to pay so much for groceries. And the hope is, once we know what's happening, we can force this government to take real action and ensure that um, you know, Canadians have the help that they need. So far, we've been successful in pushing them and enforcing the Liberals to uh, make the changes I talked about mm -hmm. when it comes to doubling the GST tax credit, when it comes to the, the Canada housing benefit. Um, these are important steps. We need to do more, and we're going to continue to push for those things so that Canadians have the help that they need during some, some pretty uh, extraordinary times when people are really struggling. For sure. And Mr. Francesca, I just want to bring you back here. Next week, the Bank of Canada is expected to raise its key rate again. The Parliamentary Budget Officer expects it to go up to 4% by the end of the year. How worried are you that inflation could become entrenched if these rate hikes uh, just don't, aren't able to keep inflation in check? I think we have to trust our institutions and not undermine them. What you saw earlier today, in fact, through a private member's bill put forward by Andrew Scheer in the House of Commons, is an attempt to undermine the, account, the independence of the Bank of Canada. Uh, Mr. Polyev, for example, throughout his leadership campaign, talked about firing the leader of the Bank of Canada, the, um, the central banker, excuse me, Tiff Macklem. That's not acceptable. Uh, they should listen to Ed Fast, in fact, who came out months ago and talked about how absurd of a policy that is. We trust the independence of the Bank of Canada, its professionalism. Uh, that's where it needs to be kept. As far as uh, interest rates, we will help Canadians through difficult times. We recognize that increases in interest rates are difficult, particularly when it comes to paying the mortgage, and, and it has other effects. But the Bank of Canada has seen a situation where the economy has been uh, very strong, uh, in fact too hot, and now it has uh, tried to uh, cool that with uh, looking at interest rates. Uh, again, this is a, a time when we have to, as a government, do what's right, focus on uh, a meaningful public policy, and, and get away from these, this kind of populism, this right-wing populism that says that cryptocurrency is the way forward, trickle-down economics is the way forward. Look what's happening in the United Kingdom. The policies pursued by the trust government is what the Polyev uh, Conservative Party wants to put in place. It's not something that would do anything for the everyday Canadian. In fact, I asked my CPC colleagues, I asked Mr. Chambers here, what would they do if they were in office right now? All they do is talk about cutting taxes. So, They're very so, vague so on about, that. I'll they do would that. cut taxes I, I, for I the wealthiest the of Canadians. I, I, for the wealthiest I appreciate the prompt, Mr. Just, I appreciate the prompt, but how about I put the question to Mr. Chambers? Um, not only what would your party do, but talk to me a little bit about that motion that Mr. Scheer put forth today. Sure. Well, if, if people believe that uh, having the Auditor General, which is an independent body, have oversight over the Bank of Canada is somehow uh, political, uh, you know, that, that is just not true. Uh, but the government, what you're hearing is the government wants to distract from the record. The record is high spending, high inflation, 
and life becoming more unaffordable for Canadians. Conservatives have said and have continued to put forward ideas, including uh, over the next few days, about an energy relief package to reduce the costs that uh, families are facing on their energy bills, uh, including you know, removing the HST from uh, energy bills, removing the carbon tax from energy bills. These are the things that will help uh, Canadians deal with the high cost of inflation and the high cost of energy. Those are the real tangible things that we're talking about, but the government wants to distract. That's not the case. Mr. Chambers, thank case, you so much. Mr. Backrack, just before uh, we have 20 seconds or less, beyond the greedflation, what more can we do right now? Well, this dental care plan that we've been pushing for for a long time is a key part of that. Uh, this is something that both the Conservatives and the Liberals voted against just a year ago. Mm -hmm. And now we have a bill before the House that includes an important uh, payment to Canadian families who have kids under 12 to get their teeth fixed. This is an important part of the affordability picture as well. And it's something that I hope uh, the Conservatives will, will come around on because I hear from so many families uh, across my riding, across Canada, that are struggling with the cost of going to the right. dentist, something so basic. So we're going to keep pushing on that as well. It's a plan that has support from so many people across the country. Going to have to leave it there. Mr. Backrack thank you so from much. the NDP here, Mr. Franciscatos, Mr. Chambers, thank you all so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Switching gears now to BC and charges have now been laid against the person suspected of fatally stabbing Burnaby, MP, Burnaby RCMP Constable Shailin Yang. Constable Yang was killed yesterday while responding to a call at a local park. For the latest, let's now bring in CTV News BC Bureau Chief Melanie Nagy. Melanie, what do we know about these charges in the slaying of the BC RCMP officer? Well, we now know that Zhang Wan Ham, a man in his 30s, has been charged with first-degree murder for the death of Constable Yang. We know that those charges have been approved by the BC Prosecution Service. BC Prosecution Service also says that he's been remanded till November 2nd and uh, will remain in custody until that time. Now, we've just done some preliminary digging into court records, and from what we can see is that uh, Mr. Ham had uh, passed assault charges against him, and the most recent one looked like it occurred on March 17th. It also looks like on uh, earlier this week an application may have been um, applied for uh, a warrant for uh, his arrest linked to that matter. Again, those are, that's just a preliminary dig, but there does look to be uh, that uh, Mr. Ham had uh, a history of assault, so we're looking to learn more, and we will hope to learn more. The integrated homicide team is expected to give an update uh, in about an hour from now, and we're supposed to learn more about the charges uh, that have been announced today. I want to ask you about these two investigations into the incident. What can you tell us about those? So I just mentioned uh, the integrated homicide team. Now that uh, unit is a special agency. They've taken over the investigation um, of this case primarily because uh, Burnaby Detachment uh, would be investigating one of their own. So they are doing the main investigation. There's another investigation as well by the IIO, and this is a civilian-led um, agency, and they're tasked with looking at situations where a civilian has been injured or killed uh, by the action or lack of action of an officer. And so they are looking into this as well. They spoke earlier today, and while there are still few details as to what exactly happened in the moments leading up to what police describe as an altercation between Constable Yang and Mr. Ham, what the IIO is saying is that there are a lot of security cameras in that area, particularly attached to a nearby building. They now have surveillance video, and that will form a key part 
um, of the evidence in this case. And they also said that um, while it was a bit of a distance, they have uh, they can clearly see, they say, what took place. Uh, we also learned, because um, yesterday wasn't as clear, but we've learned that uh, Constable Yang did fire her weapon and she was the one to shoot Ham uh, during the altercation. Melanie, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for this update. CTV News' BC Bureau Chief Melanie Nagy from BC. Coming up, a conversation with Ukraine's president. CTV's Paul Workman sat down with Vladimir Zelensky to ask about the state of the war and what more Canada can do to help. Stay right here. Power Play will be right back. Here we see hundreds of strikes at Ukraine, at the capital, at civil infrastructure, at schools nearby the university, and the shutting down of our energy system for, just for the people not to get through the winter, killing people either with hunger that happened, blocking uh, of the sea routes, or with cold, with freeze. Welcome back. That was Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky speaking to CTV's chief international correspondent Paul Workman in Kyiv. In their conversation, they spoke about Russian drones targeting cities across Ukraine and his country's ability to defend itself. While regions across Ukraine reel from attacks, Russian, Russia has imposed martial law on four illegally annexed regions. So, does President Zelensky think Canada is doing enough to support Ukraine? And what is life like for a leader who is fighting for the very existence of his people? Let's find out. And joining me now is CTV National News Chief International Correspondent Paul Workman. Paul joins us from Kiev. Thank you so much, Paul. First, you were given remarkable access to a president at war, a leader that the world has been getting to know for the last eight months. Now, as you spoke with him and spent some time with him, what struck you, not just about the politician, but also the person? Well, I really, really wanted to know how he's holding up, actually. He's been living in this fortress, living and working in the same fortress for eight months now, uh, unable to really go out very much, living in a protective bubble. I wanted to know just how he deals with that, uh, you know, because it's very difficult. He's watching his people being killed every day and putting out statements and trying to, you know, keep, the, keep his people motivated as well as himself. So I, I essentially said to him, you know, Churchill had his darkest hour. Have you had your darkest hour yet? And how do you really cope? How do you deal with this? And what he said was that he tries to stay as normal as he possibly can, that he, he, he wants to be able to get out and talk to people in the streets because he feels that's the best way to understand what the people of Ukraine are going through. He said he even gets out and tries to drive his car every so often in spite of all the security issues. Um, he, 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 he seemed quite humble in that sense. And he said, look, I'm just human and I don't want to get used to all of this killing because, you know, it's just so terrible. And he seemed to be saying that it was outrage that motivated him to be able to keep him going every day, to be able to push 
uh, the kind of strength that he needs to lead this country and that the people of this country need to be able to follow him and to continue fighting. So um, he was actually, in, I thought, in quite good humor today. His aides have told me that when he gets tired and doesn't get enough sleep, he sometimes gets cranky, as we all do. <laughs> but he was, um, he was certainly happy to talk to us today for a full hour um, and talk to us about Canada and its relationship with Ukraine as well, Mike. Yeah, and let's get to that. But also, I mean, remarkable resolve on his part. I mean, Zelensky uh, was asked, you asked him specifically about Canada's response. Let's take a look at this clip right now for a second. It's a very powerful support. Not every state can boast of that amount, uh, although at the same time Trudeau is not boasting. I'm again very grateful to him. So we just heard from him there. Now on this side of the world there's a lot of criticism within Canada saying that our country should be doing more to help Ukraine. Is that the same sense that you got from Zelensky? Well that was the reason I asked him the question because I know that um, Ukraine has asked for more um, armored vehicles from Canada and more weapons and they're just not getting them and so I said to him are you you know are you, are you let down by this how much more do you think Canada should do how much more do you think Canada should step up and as you heard his answer he was, he was very effusive about how much Canada has been able to do and what it's doing and that its support has been really quite forthcoming he said and he seemed to have a figure on the tip of his tongue that Canada has given something like $2 billion in, in, you know, in help to Ukraine. And other countries have not really given that much at all. So I think he was very satisfied with what he's getting from Canada. And there wasn't a sort of a, even a hint of disappointment in his voice, Mike. Now, Paul, you're in Kyiv right now, one of the many cities targeted by Russian drone strikes. What can you tell us about the situation right now, where you are and what you've been seeing? Well, as we saw on Monday, there was this massive swarm of drones over the city of Kyiv, killed four people, wounded quite a number of others, caused, caused quite a bit of damage. And those extraordinary scenes of police officers on the street using their small arms to try to knock these weapons out of the air. So Zelensky today talked about that a little bit and said, look, you know, we, we need more def air defense systems. We need more to be able to stop these drones from being able to fall on our heads. Um, you know, and he's hoping to get that kind of support from Europe and the United States. But he said a lot more has to come. And um, if, if there was some disappointment, I guess it would be in that regard. Uh, also, you know, as we were doing this interview today, he, he looked down at his phone for a minute and said, oh, um, you know, we've been hit uh, with drones. Uh, five more drones have been knocked out of the air, he said. I think the total number in the end was seven. But then a, sort of a few minutes later, we heard a couple of loud explosions, detonations in the room that we were in. And he looked up again and said, oh, that's from our air defense systems that are working now. Amazing work, Paul. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for being with us today. CTV's Paul Workman in Kiev. Thanks very much. Yep. And you can watch the full interview with President Zelensky on CTV National News tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on CTV News Channel and on ctvnews.ca. And here's some other news you need to know. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith has issued an apology for her past comments about the war in Ukraine. Smith says she categorically condemns Russia's invasion and the indescribable suffering being inflicted on the Ukrainian people. It comes after she defied earlier calls to apologize for suggesting Ukraine should pursue neutrality and allow some regions to break away and form independent governments. 
an Iranian athlete who received, uh, received a hero's welcome in Tehran after she competed in a climbing event in South Korea without wearing a headscarf. Video posted online shows a large crowd gathered outside the international airport in Tehran to greet um, Elnaz Rakabi. Concern had been growing for her safety after she competed in a climbing event without wearing the mandatory headscarf required by the Islamic Republic. We are now in the fifth week of protests in Iran over the death of a young woman who died while in custody of the country's so-called morality police. And British Prime Minister Liz Truss was grilled by MPs today as she continues to fight for her political life. Truss is facing intense pressure from the opposition and from within her own party over her botched economic plan. Today there was a testy exchange with opposition leader Keir Starmer. The country's got nothing to show for it except the destruction of the economy and the implosion of the Tory party. I've got the list here. 45p tax cut, gone. Corporation tax cut, gone. 20p tax cut, gone. Two-year energy freeze, gone. Tax-free shopping, gone. Economic credibility, gone. And her supposed best friend, the former Chancellor, he's gone as well. They're all gone. So why is she still here? Yeah. Mr Speaker, I am a fighter and not a quitter. We have delivered on the energy price guarantee. We have. We've delivered on the energy price guarantee. We've delivered on national insurance. We are going to deliver to stop the militant trade unions disrupting our railways. The Honourable Gentleman has no idea, he has no plan, and he has no alternative. You thought our question period was spicy. Well, echoing what's happening here in Canada, British food prices rose at their fastest pace since 1980 last month. Inflation there has also risen to a 40-year high, and that's putting pressure on the government to balance the books without gutting programs they support that, that support the country's poorest residents. Well, still to come, another day, another piece of the puzzle at the Emergencies Act inquiry. Ontario Centre Provincial Member of Parliament Joel Harder, Hardin joins the press gallery right after this. They, they did not provide the board with a detailed operational plan. In fact, we never saw a detailed operational plan throughout until close to the very end. We were given assurances that there were operational plans in place to address the situation. What our culture is slowly saying to me um, is that he would be very surprised if they were still here on Monday. Well, that was Ottawa City Councillor Diane Deans giving testimony today at the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. She detailed conversations with then-Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly and how he seemingly downplayed how long the protesters could stay in Ottawa. That was the former head of the Ottawa Police Services Board. She expressed concern about the coming convoy days before it did arrive in the capital. Slowly 
didn't seem to be too concerned, though. We're also hearing that city councillors felt the province was missing in action in the early stages of the protest. And that's prompted the Ontario NDP to call on Ontario Premier Doug Ford, Solicitor General Sylvia Jones, and the Transport Minister Caroline Mulroney to testify at the inquiry. Now, the Ontario government has responded, saying, in part, Ontario has fully complied with the public inquiry investigating the use of the Emergencies Act, providing hundreds of documents. In addition, the Commission has interviewed senior Ontario officials who are also available to be called as witnesses. So, does the inquiry need to he hear from the Premier? Let's bring in the press gallery. Joining me right now from ctvnews.ca, she's the online politics producer and Capital Dispatch newsletter writer, Rachel Aiello, Politico Ottawa playbook writer, Zian Lum, and our special guest, NDP MPP for Ottawa Centre, Joel Harden. MPP Harden has endorsed mayoral candidate Catherine McKenney and Somerset Ward City Councillor Ariel Troster in Ottawa's election. Nice to see all of you. Mr. Harden, let's start with you. You are calling on Premier Ford and Ministers Jones and Mulroney to testify to the inquiry. What specific questions do they need to answer? Uh, well, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I had a flood of calls and texts yesterday with the revelations from Mayor Watson's testimony, and it were the same questions that I posed to the Premier in a joint letter with then-Councillor McKinney back in February. We want to know why the province didn't exercise its authority for vehicle insurance, for vehicle licensing, to do what the province of Quebec did across the Ottawa River from us, which is threatened to renege the insurance and licensing uh, requirements for these convoy trucks. The province of Quebec did that in Montreal and Quebec City when the trucks arrived, and they left. But here they didn't. And for me, it's not sufficient that we have government officials providing letters. I think we need to see Ministers Mulroney, former Solicitor General Jones, and the Premier, Premier Ford, answering questions as to why it did not exercise the authority that the province of Quebec did to stop the harassment of our city that took place. Rachel, I'll bring you in here. Now, the commission has tabled, uh, or 600 documents have been tabled at this commission right now so far. Some of them, uh, you know, dig into the province's role. What have you found so far? Yeah, so I spent my day kind of going over them. And to Joel's point, obviously, there was a lot of mention through successive documents about both municipal and federal frustrations over the absence of the provincial government. There was obviously the messages we saw yesterday between Watson and the Prime Minister suggesting that uh, Ford was hiding. And then today I was looking through and there's a text message exchange between Bill Blair's chief of staff and Watson's chief of staff trying to convene these tripartite meetings and back and forth being like, have you heard from the province? Nada, they're not there. And this conversation was just a few days before the, the provincial government decided to enact their state of emergency. Zian, I was going to ask you, the Prime Minister is set to testify. We've heard from Mayor Watson. How much political pressure is on Premier Ford now to do the same and follow mm -hmm. suit here? Well, there is significant political pressure. It's only going to build each day that he doesn't appear before the commission. Uh, he's either going to you know, take questions from reporters in media scrums about this, about why he's not going to be appearing, or he can, you know, take the decision to actually appear before the commission and take questions um, to fill in those knowledge gaps or let others fill in those knowledge gaps uh, for him and his uh, Can he team. continue to sit there and say, well, I'm ready. If they want me to, I, I, they just have to call me. Well, then he would have to show up, right? <laughs> right. So. Yeah, but I guess because he keeps saying, yeah. I have, you know, he can say they haven't called me. 
Yeah. And the commission does have the ability to still call him. They've kind of reserved that right that this is our expected list of witnesses, right. but we've already seen them call someone who wasn't initially on the list. So absolutely, I would not be surprised to see them go ahead and call Ford or at least Sylvia Jones, who was a solicitor general at the time, because their names are coming up regularly throughout these hearings. Yeah, Mr. Harden, I hear you want to get in on this one. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's it's incredulous to me that they haven't offered it already. The provinces of Saskatchewan and Alberta have been participating. The prime minister of our country is going to be participating. The mayor of our city has been participating. Where is that provincial voice for Ontario? And it, for me, it's not a partisan matter. I mean, if I were involved in a cabinet at this time, I would feel compelled as the government of Ontario to disclose everything and to have our lead spokespeople available, not staff members, not deputy ministers, but the people that folks vote for. Uh, we want to know. The residents are texting me. They're calling me. They're emailing me. They want to know what did the premier know, and and did in fact the premier think these meetings that you're talking about were unimportant, which is what these text exchanges are are alleging. In a moment where we had 500 vehicles parked in our downtown, how could he think they were unimportant? Yeah, I was just going to say, Mr. Harden, I mean, we just heard from the former Ottawa Police Services Board Chair, uh, Diane Dean. She testified about the communication gaps between the board and police service. Now, she says the board never saw a detailed operational plan until the very end. What do you make wow. of that communications breakdown? Well, we, we clearly have a lot of soul searching to do in the city of Ottawa with our police force. It was clear to me uh, being in the street, literally talking to some of those convoy trucks, trying to understand why they felt compelled to be here, honking their horns at all hours of the day. I was I was doing my best as someone who's been involved in community organizing, community mediation of conflicts to get a sense of why they were there, but I did not see our police service doing that. Uh, what I actually saw were people standing around, and it took normal residents like myself convening at Bank in Riverside, peacefully stopping convoy vehicles on the way to Parliament Hill to tell them, hey, look, you've made your point. It's time to go home. People live here. Uh, we can disagree on COVID policies, but, but you can't hold the city hostage. But it's the police service's job to do that. And in Quebec, they were able to do that before it even you know, took seat. It, it honestly looked, from our vantage point, like the Ministry of Transport, the Police Service of Ontario, gave people an escort into the downtown to set up their vehicle and allow them to stay there. So I, I really want to know, from the province inside, what MTO powers, what Ministry of Transportation of Ontario powers were exercised? Was there even a debate at the highest level in Minister Mulroney's office about whether or not they should follow the lead of Quebec? Because it would seem to me that made a lot more sense than just letting people fester, letting people sit here, letting our city endure this uh, for weeks on it. Yeah, and, and Rachel, in Dean's testimony, there was a lot of question as to that communication with then-Chief Peter Slowly and where he seemingly didn't believe and didn't think it was in the cards that the convoy could have stayed beyond the weekend. How much are you looking forward to that testimony, and what kind of questions does he have to answer now? Uh, a lot of questions, Mike. Obviously, that is one of the biggest ones. We've heard conflicting testimony, you know, the Hotel Association giving them warning that they were going to be staying for at least 30 days, and then conflicting messages about, well, we didn't think so. The OPP certainly thought so. They had briefings that we saw today suggesting that they were going to camp out until the mandates were lifted. Uh, so there is going to be a lot for him to answer in terms of what was the rationale for him to make that assessment that they were really only dealing with a weekend protest. Did they underestimate the organization of the protesters? Uh, did they just not take it seriously? And hopefully we'll get some answers there. Uh, but obviously, as things unfolded, a bunch of other questions about his decisions that uh, <laughs> need to be answered. Yeah, Zian, what do you want to hear from Slowly? 
I guess, more information beyond what he's already said in the parliamentary committees, because this inquiry is just one of many that's already mm -hmm. taken place. But this one is different because there's been a large document, you know, documents and records being uh, made available. Rachel's digging through 600 pages of it today. Um, so just, you know, filling in more gaps in kind of like the chronology and just, um, yeah, being talking to different, um, I guess, testimonies and different, like, uh, uh, people's interpretations of how he was involved and kind of responding to those kind of criticisms. It seems like there's just every single day another revelation and we all just want to grab a bag of popcorn and keep eating and, and, and keep watching, I should say, as well. Uh, Ontario NDP MPP Joel Harden, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to leave it there. And we should also say that we invited Premier Ford and Ontario's current and former Solicitor Generals to be on the show today. They were both unavailable. Rachel Zian, you'll stick around for our, our next um, segment as well. Sky-high food prices at the grocery stores. We're going to talk about that. Is Canada on track for a major food crisis? The CEO of Canada's largest food rescue organization joins the press gallery panel next. Stay with PowerPlay. We'll be back in just a moment. The Prime Minister's solution, of course, is to raise taxes on food with a carbon tax hike that will triple, triple, triple the tax on the cost of transporting and producing food in the first place. Will you reverse this tax hike so Canadians can put food on the table? On the contrary, our solution to support families is to move forward uh, with a GST rebate that's going to hit 11 million households. It just received royal assent last night because uh, all parties support it. The Conservatives actually reversed their initial opposition to our proposal uh, in order to support it, and that was a good thing. Well, food prices in Canada are rapidly rising, but if you've been to a grocery store lately, I mean, you already know that. According to Statistics, to Statistics Canada, I will get it out right, I promise, food prices grew at their fastest rate since August 1981 last month. Give you some context, that's when Rick Springfield's Jesse's Girl topped the charts. I wasn't old enough to know, remember that, somebody researched it for me. Year over year, Canadians are paying 7.6% percent more for meat, 9.7 more for their dairy products, almost 15 percent more for bakery products, and close to 12 percent more for fresh vegetables. So as more and more Canadians struggle to keep up with rising food costs, what more can be done to keep Canadians from going hungry? Let's bring back the press gallery panel. We have CTV News' Rachel Aiello, Politico's Zian Lum, and our special guest is Lori Nickel, the CEO of Second Harvest, Canada's largest food rescue organization. Thank you all for being here. Lori, we're going to start with you. In your work, what are you seeing on the ground? Are the price of groceries, what are they doing? Are they starting to get out of reach right now for more and more Canadians? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we already had prices that were out of reach and as a result of supply chain issues and COVID, they're further and further out of reach. What's deeply upsetting, though, and Second Harvest really focuses on healthy, perishable food. It's those categories of food that you need for health and educational outcomes that are the furthest out of reach. And so that's going to impact us for years and years to come because families can only buy really shelf-stable and overly processed food, which is not good for them. So it's not just food, it's the good, healthy food. And that's what's required for everyone's success. So what does that mean for demand for your services? Our demand has risen unbelievably. So right now, there's about 5.8 million Canadians that are 
self-identify as food insecure of that about 1.4 are children and youth under 18. Last year's second harvest expanded and we supported 4.3 million Canadians. And second harvest is unique. We're not purchasing food. We're actually just using surplus food that is already there across the supply chain in categories of produce, dairy, and protein. So it actually exists. And I think that's the dichotomy that is just so frustrating is that we're actually throwing this food into landfills. And while we have such a food insecurity issue, we could be redirecting this to communities that need it. And again, there are like there's food banks, which are great, but there's 4,500 of them. What most Canadians don't understand is there are 61,000, 61,000 food charities supporting Canadians with food right now. Incredible number. I mean, we appreciate them, but clearly there's too many of them uh, because they're needed. Way too many. Exactly. Rachel, on the political side of this, we saw the House yesterday pass unanimously um, this motion or pass the motion targeting greedflation. Mm -hmm. um, and it's targeting grocery chains, large grocery chains especially. Are there any teeth to this or is this really symbolic? Well, largely any Opposition Day motion is mostly symbolic. There isn't a lot that's forcing the government here. But in this situation, it is uh, the government has indicated that they agree that greedflation is something they need to look into. There's a call for there to be a competition bureau investigation. There's an ongoing committee study. So I think in that way, the NDP have actually kind of been strategically smart in bringing this issue forward. Obviously, it's pressing for a lot of Canadians. You know, this is no longer the political conversation about a $16 glass of orange juice in an exorbitant expense. Like, we are getting close to that being a reality for some folks. So I think it's going to be interesting to follow how they're able to handle this going further, like other than symbolic motions about looking into greedflation. Like what is actually going to happen there? And right. I think it's going to be on the NDP to keep the government's feet to the fire on this one and see what more that they can do because, you know, largely other than putting symbolic motions in pressure, uh, you know, the federal government can't do much in terms of grocery prices specifically. Inflation, maybe, but... Yeah. And Zian, the Liberals have always sort of positioned themselves as the party of the middle class or those working to join it. Um, I mean, what kind of pressure is on them now to continue to keep that moniker if ever they, they did have it? A lot of pressure because we see that legislation that received Laurel sent yesterday. Uh, people are not going to get that extra kind of GST pay, uh, bump, I guess, until the holidays. Mm -hmm. And this problem about food insecurity isn't one with an immediate solution. Uh, Several witnesses in Agriculture Committee have raised this as uh, a problem that was going to come, uh, accentuated by uh, last year's droughts, uh, rising input costs in mm -hmm. farming, like we're talking about, uh, increased costs in seed and fuel and fertilizers, and also transportation issues that have also kind of uh, increased the cost of food to get uh, food from farms to the stores. So, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a problem that the Liberals should anticipate um, yeah. in the next few months. Lori, I want to bring you back in here for a second. We're seeing Loblaws put a freeze on their no-name brand products. I mean, is freezing food prices enough of a solution to really fix this problem, or does the problem run much deeper than the actual prices? Uh, it runs much deeper. I mean, poverty is a much bigger problem than food prices at your retail store. I mean, I would support any kind of price freezing on food so that people can access it. But there was a great uh, intervention, a legislative intervention during COVID, where they had a food security fund that really supported Canadians and made sure that they had access to food uh, and good food. And there was a surplus food rescue program so we could get surplus food to Canadians while at the same time supporting farmers and producers. And I don't know, I don't think it was a good idea to stop those interventions. I know it wasn't because right now the problem hasn't gotten 
better. It's gotten far worse. And yet the interventions of support have completely stopped. So I think there needs to be some pressure on the Liberal government to bring those supports back while we figure out the deeper policy implications that we need to create so we can have a Canada that we're not worried about accessing food for your everyday Canadian. When you look at supports, I mean, last night, Royal Assent to the GST rebate, Rachel. I mean, does that help at all in terms of the government buying themselves some political will here? Uh, potentially, if the Canadians who are eligible for that feel that grocery is where those, you know, few hundred dollars is going to go. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I think the call for bigger benefits or continued support, as we saw in the pandemic, like the time for that is over. If anyone was listening to Christopher Freeland's speeches over the last few days, it's clear that they are bracing for the potential of a recession. They are aware that inflation is a concern for the federal government. And yes, it is having impact on grocery prices, but they've made it clear, like, they're not going to be in the business of doing more handing out checks to Canadians, it doesn't sound like. Right. Uh, so unfortunately, while there is this demand, they're trying to be mindful, I guess, of not putting more fuel on the fire and exacerbating inflation by doing things like handing out um, benefits like we saw during COVID. But one of the benefits, Zian, that they did say that they want to continue is the carbon tax rebate. Um, you know, I mean, Canadians just got back some of that money this month. Does this help sort of calm the anger a little bit over the rising prices? Uh, only if people aren't listening to the news in the next few weeks or <laughs> months ahead. Um, you know, to Rachel's point, uh, mentioning Christopher Freeland's speech today, uh, the deputy prime minister had warned, you know, there are difficulties ahead and we should brace for them. Um, you know, but you know, probably not because this month's rebate is the second time that the rebate checks have gone out, uh, physical checks or direct deposits. Right. Um, and that change came into place because there was such low public awareness that there are rebates involved in the first place. So that's going to take more time for Canadians to kind of like realize that, oh, you get the money back. But obviously that will change in a few years, too. Laurie, I'm going to bring you back in here for a second. So if you had to give this government a grade on how it's dealing with this right now, not only the, the, the crisis of the food costs, but also poverty in general, where would you rank them right now? Oh, I don't want to play this game. Nope. <laughs> I think that they try <laughs> to do their best. Um, I, and there was some there was a great um, in in the uh, campaign where they talked about uh, national child nutrition programming, but there's no teeth to it because there's no money attached to it. But if they actually went through with that, I think you could see a, a really good outcome where we're getting food to children and youth in schools. If they follow through on that, I think that's great. They get an A plus. But until we see the teeth in these things, I you know, I, I'm kind of on the fence. Yeah. Rachel, I've got 15 seconds. Do you give them a grade if you can? <laughs> uh, underway with challenges. <laughs> Zian? Ditto. <laughs> Ditto. I, you know, guys, I tried. I tried, and it just didn't happen. And, Lori, I think I, I blame you for saying that you weren't going to do I'm it. Sorry. But you know what? I appreciate you being there. Lori Nickel, thank you so much. Rachel Aiello, Zian Loom, thank you all very much. That is your Power Play Day in Politics. Thanks so much for spending your time with us. We'll be back here tomorrow, everyone. Until then, have a great night.